0: Family will be opening up uh, to the Book of Hosea, so if you don't have a Bible, it's in the rows in front of you. Uh, it'll be page seven five one, and I'll be re- reading Hosea one one through two. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, when the Lord First, spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So, going back to the beginning, there was Adam and Eve, and they fell, and that brought sin and death into the world. But God was at work, He didn't leave us in sin and death. And He worked in a number of different ways. The first way he worked was he called a man named Abraham. And through his offspring, he created a nation. And the nation was supposed to look forward to the time that Jesus would be born. And God would come and save us from our sins. And in the meantime, that nation was supposed to show the world what God was like. In the ways that they loved about one another and cared about one another. Other people were supposed to see this nation and see the difference that God made in their lives and be like, we want to know your God. We want to be saved by your God. And at this point in the story, God starts to say some pretty wild stuff. First, he does some wild stuff. He rescues them from slavery in another nation. He didn't do that for any other nation. They were slaves in Egypt, and he came and took them out of slavery And then he started to speak about them in a way that none of the other so-called gods that the other nations had would talk about their people. This is what he says in Exodus 34. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Now there's a lot there in that verse to interpret. But one thing that jumps out to us is that God says that he's a jealous God. Have you ever heard that before? That God is a jealous God? And he doesn't just say, I'm a jealous God. He says, my name is jealous. This is the strongest way God can say that. I really feel this emotion in my heart about my people. My name is jealous. Now, why is it appropriate for God to feel that way? Now, that emotion, jealousy, often isn't a good thing. It's not a good thing in a relationship between, like, a boss and his employees or friendships. Jealousy usually shows that there's kind of some sort of sin. But it is a good emotion in a marriage. When you're married to your spouse, you seem to be jealous that they love only you and you love only them, and if there's any rival for your love, you should feel jealous about that. So what we see here in these verses are clues. We see clues that when God saved his people from Egypt, he actually went so far as to say, I'm in a marriage with these people. And the verses actually say that For them to go after other gods is to whore after other gods. It's to do what you do when you cheat on your spouse. And I just want to pause for a moment and ask you, do you really believe that? That God is in a marriage with you? Because we're God's new people and he's our God, just like he was the God to Israel. And I want to ask you, do you believe that you're in a marriage with God? And a lot of you will say, yes, of course I believe that. No, but really, do you? Do you really believe that? I think we struggle to believe that because I think a lot of the times our emphasis in following God comes down to, I don't want to do stuff that makes him mad, rather than, I just really want to be with him. We say in our heads, I know he's my spouse. But then what we feel in his heart is I just want to please him. I don't actually want to be with him. Or how about we try to do things to make him happy. And we try to jump through the hoops. But really at the end of the day, we're just not eager to be with him. All you, all you folks who are married, it's really all about being with this person for the rest of your life. That's why you did this. It's not about the house. It's not about the social status. It's all about being with this person. And in our marriage with God, let's not let other stuff get in the way of that. Let's make being with him number one. And let's look out for the ways that we relate to him like boss or manager or supervisor and are not eager to be with him as husband. Now, I just want to address the gentleman in the room pretty quick. Um, it might be a little strange to say that God is my husband. Um, but it's okay. You, we can say that. We, we can really say that. And the reason we can say that is because this isn't talking about anything physical. It's talking about a spiritual union that's so close and so intimate That there's no other image other than marriage that gets to it. There's no other picture that works. That's why God picked the image of marriage to describe the relationship that he has with his people. And so guys, it's okay to say that I am married to God. Now getting back to the story, you would think, right? God saved his people from slavery. God married them. Who else had that privilege? No one. You would think, man, these people would treasure this so much. And they would obey so carefully. And they'd be so careful to make sure that this marriage stayed strong. But that's not exactly what happened. Let's take a look at Judges two sixteen and 17. It says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed then, down to them. They t- soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. The story of Israel is a sad story. Generation after generation, they sin against God and they're faithless to him, Even though God keeps loving them, even though God keeps giving them a second chance, they keep stumbling and falling away from him generation after generation. And as I read that, I thought, man, Ross, doesn't that remind you a little bit of yourself? And if you're honest, I think you'd agree with me that it probably reminds you a little bit of you as well. And what do we see on God's part? The husband who sinned against again and again and again. More forgiveness. More love. More forbearance. He brought them to the land he had promised to give them. And if you read the story of them going to the land, they didn't earn it. But he still gave it to them. And when they were oppressed by their enemies, God gave them a king named David who was the greatest king they ever had. And he defeated their enemies. Oh, God is so good to his people. And you might think, now the marriage will work out. They have the land. They have the king. They don't have any reason to be afraid anymore. But actually, by the time we get to David's grandson, things had already fallen apart again. You see, the unthinkable happened. This nation, I talked about the nation of Israel, being a place that when the people loved one another, the whole world would see God and want to be with him? They actually fought against one another and sinned against one another so greatly that they split up into two kingdoms. So by the time we get to David's grandson, Rehoboam, not only were the people having the relationship with God interrupted, the relationships with one another were broken, and the nation that God sent out to redeem the world through was separated into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And I just want to really quickly break down those names, just so that there's no confusion. So the whole kingdom used to be called Israel. Now, when you read in Hosea about Israel, It's talking about the northern kingdom. And when you read about the southern kingdom, it's called Judah. So you have Israel and Judah. And so when we saw in verse 1, it said, here are some kings from Israel, and here are some kings from Judah. And we thought, well, what is those places? Well, those are just the northern and southern kingdoms. And so when Hosea enters the scene... The, the Jewish person would think, man, I live in a broken kingdom and I'm awaiting a new David to come and heal my kingdom. So let's, let's talk about now when Hosea was written. Hosea came onto the scene during a time of peace and prosperity. Even though the kingdom was divided, there wasn't really any enemies attacking Israel and they were getting kind of wealthy and prosperous. And they probably had a lot of reason to think, man, God is really proud of me. Because that's how our hearts work, right? We start to think when things are going well, like God likes us. And when things are going not well, God doesn't like us. We interpret our lives based off of our circumstances rather than his word. But that's far from the truth. Things were going well on the outside, but in their hearts there was corruption. They were disobeying God. They were indulging in secret sins. They were even indulging in idol worship. They were worshiping the false god Baal, who was the storm god, who they thought that if I worship this god in addition to worshiping Yahweh from the Bible, then my crops are going to be more likely to grow because I get rain. And so that's when God sends Hosea. He sends Hosea into this situation where Israel is doing well. They think they're doing well. But in reality, they're spiritually perishing. How good of their husband to send them one last messenger to recall them to faithfulness. And and the sad news is, this is actually a really sad story, is that they don't repent. God calls a faithfulness for the last time to this bride. And she commits adultery one last time. And within a generation, the kingdom of Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the, the book of Hosea, it has this twofold message. The first message is that sin and idolatry is very severe and that God takes it seriously and he judges it. And that's a heavy message. But if you keep reading the book, you'll notice something very powerful. is that God's heart keeps burning with love for his people, even when he's talking about judging them. It's like he can barely bring himself to do it. And every time he talks about judging them, he talks about the future day when he's going to come in Jesus Christ and make things right. And he's going to have a bride that he's going to forgive of his sins. And obey him. God is a very emotional person in this book. He's offended by the sins that are done against him. But he's crushed and he loves the people who are sinning against him. And he says that I'm going to go to any length to save my people. That's the kind of God we worship. A God who takes sin seriously. And a God who shows even more serious grace than that. And so what happens, what, God, what's, what, what the book is looking forward to, it, is, it has these realities of sin on one hand and of grace on the other hand. And what God is looking forward to the day when his grace is going to overtake sin and rebellion. And his love is going to overtake our disobedience. And there will be a happy marriage between God and his people Forever. That's what the book of Hosea is anticipating. That's what it's looking forward to. All right, let's take a look now at verse 2, and it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's an interesting story, you might say. But what does it have to do with me? And I think what the book of Hosea does is it shows us how prone we are to idolatry and how serious idolatry is. That's what I want us to walk away with today, a sense of the severity of idolatry. Idolatry at its core is when we reject God and replace him with something else that's idolatry when we think that there's something else that would be better suited us to have that we could focus on and pay attention to and so we reject god and the reason why that is so evil is because god is so worthy it's the value and worth of god that makes idolatry so sad And so wicked, when God who's infinitely worthy of all our love and respect gets replaced by something that's infinitely less worthy, that's an insult to him. That makes him look small. If you listen to Hosea 2.13, it says, And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with rings and jewelry, and went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. What we see is that going after other loves is forgetting the Lord. And the reason that we do that, or that they did that, is because they really thought that they could take care of God better than he could. So idolatry happens when we pridefully think that we don't need God and that we can do a better job than he could do taking care of us. Now, the Israelites were an agricultural society, which means that a big part of their survival came down to if there was enough rain to water their crops. So they had two options. They could trust God and wait for him to provide rain For their crops. Or. They could ask Baal to do it. And do rituals and sacrifices. That would obligate Baal. To come and give them rain. So listen to what Hosea 2.12 says. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Of which she said. These are my wages. Which my lovers have given me. In idolatry, there's a sense of entitlement. When we worship God, there's no sense in which he owes us anything. The way the Bible makes it clear is that he just gives it to us because he loves us. All our obedience is just a response to his grace. It doesn't get his grace. The way idols are set up is people, will we will give an idol a sacrifice and the idol will repay us for our sacrifice. It's give and exchange. When we worship an idol, there's no sense of God, I need you to live. There's only a sense of I came up with a good deal and this is what I'm owed and this is what I deserve. So I think that's why a lot of our hearts are inclined towards idolatry because we really like to be in control. We don't like to be in a situation where we have to wait and plead for God to do something. But we like to imagine a world where we could do something and automatically get something back. Thus the Israelites were prone to go after idols. Now I want to talk about more about today. Because I doubt that any of you here have been tempted to worship Baal lately. So the question is, do we have idolatry? Do we have to struggle with it? And the answer is yes. Yes, our idols can be more subtle today, but they're very real. An idol is anything that we turn to to get physical and emotional provision apart from God. And so we can commit idolatry in a million different ways. And most often, we commit idolatry when we take one of the good gifts that God has given us that would otherwise be good for us to enjoy, and we make it an ultimate gift. Instead of seeing the creation as pointing us to the creator, we push the creator out of the way and indulge in the creation. And the warning that Hosea has is that when that happens, it always leads to misery and death. An idol always promises happiness, more happiness than supposedly God can give us, but he can really give us more happiness. And the result is always pain. Um, As I was preparing for this message, I I thought of my uncle, my uncle Bruce. Um, He grew up in St. Paul back in the 60s. And um, when he grew up, he became an employee for the city. And as an employee for the city, he um, ended up hurting his back a few times and ended up with chronic pain. And so what he started to do was take a good gift that God had made, which is alcohol, and drink it excessively in order that he wouldn't have to feel that pain anymore. And as time went on, he began to emotionally depend on alcohol for happiness. He couldn't be happy unless he was drinking. And it continued to consume more and more of his life until when I was a teenager, he was an alcoholic, and by the time I became an adult, he had died of liver failure. And I think his tragic story shows us what our idols really are. They start out as a slight, subtle promise of easy happiness, and they end up destroying us just like they destroyed Israel. There isn't a such thing as an idol without a false promise. So I spent some time trying to think of, Ross, what are some of the idols that that you face, that you struggle with? And the first one I thought of is entertainment. Books, movies, video games, even social media are good gifts from God but I find myself often feeling discontent before I go to bed. Instead of just spending some time with the Lord and laying down, I find myself medicating, trying to make myself feel better before I go to bed. I end up staying too late, and I'm tired the next day because I just can't lay down. Clearly I have an emotional need that I'm not looking to Jesus to meet. I'm looking to other things to meet. And I always want to ask you to reflect on your own life right now. What kinds of things are you turning to to meet your emotional needs besides Christ? What kind of things do you turn to besides him? And here's the the insidious, here's the tough part where the enemy tricks us. Is the thing doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. But the problem happens is when it replaces God. That's when a good thing becomes an idol. And that's when a good thing becomes dangerous. Another one that comes to mind is my own self-righteousness. This is another dangerous idol. This is when the good things that you do replace God as your hope that God will love you. So when you follow Jesus, something beautiful happens. You start to become more like him and you start to walk with him and you start to emulate him more. But then a dangerous thing also happens is that rather than trusting in Jesus like you used to, you start to look at your clean-up life and say, this is my hope. Look at how good I'm doing. And I think, I really think that a warning alarm for that idol is comparison. I wonder, friends, that have you compared yourself? Like me, I, I tend to do this to other people and think, man, at least I don't commit that sin. Or I'm better than this person in this way. And then you feel better about yourself. That's a clue from the Lord that the situation has turned to idolatry. And I think it goes beyond that. I think when you're comparing in, with others in any situation, it's a clue that what you're comparing about has become your idol. When it makes you feel good that you're better than someone at something. And I, quite frankly, love to feel that way. That's when it's time to begin examining my own heart and repenting. Because something else has slipped into the position that God is meant to be in. The verse that says, let him who boasts, boasts in this. That he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. When we forsake our idols and the things that we hope in, we find out that Jesus becomes our boast and not those things. And I love, I love how much in our community we talk about the gospel. We need to do it all the more. But I think when we talk so, so much about forgiveness of sin which I affirm in love, we can forget how serious sin is. We can forget how much it hurts God's heart when we do those things. We can think, oh, I just did this sin. It's okay, Jesus forgives me. But the book of Hosea is saying that God responds for idolatry like a spouse does who's cheated on. That's how it makes him feel. And so let us both embrace that Jesus We'll forgive our worst sin the second we turn to him and trust in him. And let us also remember that we cause more grief and pain to God than we sin, than we understand or acknowledge. They're both true. The main point that I want to press in and want us to remember is God is our faithful husband to whom we must be faithful. God is our faithful husband to whom we must be faithful. And I just want to invite you here to surrender and repent of our idols together. What idols is the Lord bringing to mind that, like me, we need to repent of and turn away from? Let us strive to be the pure bride that Jesus has already made us to be. Now, I bet at this point, you could feel slightly discouraged at what I'm saying. You could hear about how God is a jealous husband, or hear the history of how Israel failed and think, what am I going to do? And I'm just here to remind you today that it is such good news that we are in the new covenant and not the old covenant. In the old covenant, God provided help for his people. But it's not like the help that we get today. Today we get much more help. Since Jesus came, this is a whole new message that we get to hear. The message is that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And that as part of his faithfulness to us, he'll help us fight against our sins. So when God calls you to be faithful to him, he's not calling you to do it on his own. He's calling you to receive help from him to do it. Listen to these verses from 1 Thessalonians 5 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Do you hear what it says in verse 24? Doesn't it emphasize our faithfulness. It emphasizes God's faithfulness. When we turn away from idolatry and walk with God, we do it because of something that God did to us. There's a new kind of power that we get now as Christians that Israel didn't get. That the Holy Spirit lives with us and dwells with us. And that when we're faced with temptation, we have new power to turn away from that temptation and obey him. That's why we can say, God is our faithful husband to whom we must be faithful, and not feel a sense of dread. You don't have to feel a sense of dread when you hear that. You can feel a sense of hope. Jesus said... I'm going to complete the good work that I began in you. And so, our call to be faithful is a call that we depend on God for and not ourselves. And it starts from the position of being forgiven, not trying to receive forgiveness. And so, even though the message of the seriousness of idolatry is heavy, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The call to follow Jesus is still hopeful and encouraging. So feel encouraged. And as you commit to greater levels of faithfulness and repentance, feel optimistic that he's going to help you. All right, so now I just want to talk about how to fight an idol in your life. How to go about it. First, first you want to pray. Just like I said before, God is your your husband and part of his faithfulness to you is that he'll give you what you need to fight your sin when you ask him for it. That's part of what he's committed himself to. That's the kind of husband he is. When we sin against him and grieve his heart, and then we pray; he gives us, us what we ask. He doesn't withhold it, like we would when our spouse sins against us, or when my, I sin against my future future spouse. And second, I encourage you to ask your DNA partners for prayer, accountability, and advice. No one was ever meant to fight their sin on their own. Holiness is a group project. And I'm going to venture a guess here. If there's a sin that you're struggling with over and over again and just not finding much victory over, I'm going to venture a guess that probably you're trying to struggle on your own. You haven't invited your brothers and sisters into your fight. And I just want to encourage you to do that. Ask for their prayer. Ask for their accountability. Ask for their encouragement. I want us to be a community where no one fights against their worst idol on their own. That we're all in this together. I want to close by addressing any skeptics who think, you know, I'm not married to God. Like, what what are you talking about, Ross? And and you're right. You're right. You're not married to God. But you could be. And you might object, I don't want to be. You talked about him being a jealous husband. You talked about all the commandments you have to follow. This doesn't sound like something I want. And my answer is, I actually think you do want this. You see, when we get married at a human level, we want that exclusive relationship with someone else. We don't want an open relationship. We want to be with someone who's utterly committed to us and to whom we're utterly committed. That's the kind of intimacy we were made for. And the idea that he would be a jealous husband, that's just necessary for the relationship to be that committed and that intimate. And so, yes, it is a bit wavy thing to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive forgiveness of your sins, and to enter into a union with God that's like a marriage. But it's so good. It's so good because we want that kind of exclusive love. We want that intimacy. And so if you today are far from God and haven't believed in Him yet, He wants this for you. And I invite you just to talk to myself or any of our members after the service to find out more. In conclusion, I just want to remind us that our ability to be faithful does not come down to us. It comes down to Jesus. And when he died in our place, he died as someone who was unfaithful to God, even though he never was. So that when God treats us like we're faithful, like we're his perfect, pure bride, it's all because of him. And when we act in a new way that we never would have acted before without his help, he gets all the credit, not us. He gets all the praise. All right, let's pray, family. Jesus, we thank you so much for paying the price that you did so that we could be forgiven? So that we could enter into a marriage relationship with you? And Lord, I ask that you give us a sense of gratitude and of hope and that you help us to live with a commitment to greater faithfulness than we already have and to trust less in ourselves to be faithful and more in you than we ever have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I just invite you to take a moment to reflect. Pray. Seek the Lord. Ask him what sticks out to you. you. What do you need to do differently? What do you need to ask forgiveness for? Who do you need to loop in to your fight and let them know?